Well, good morning, OCC family, and welcome everyone who's joining us online for the first time today. We also want to give a big OCC welcome to our friends from Southside Christian Church who are worshiping with us online this morning as we celebrate the resurrection together. You know, my hope is that today's service would be a blessing and an encouragement to you as we celebrate Easter together. You know, this has always been one of my family's favorite times of year. In fact, we have so many great memories from past Easter celebrations. Uh, One memory that comes to mind was from 2015, and we had just moved back to Oklahoma City uh, after serving in ministry for three years at a church in Indiana. Now, my wife and I uh, were the first from our generation uh, to have kids in our family. So for the first few years, uh, my parents were able to be grandparents to just one grandchild. So that was my oldest son, Micaiah. And you can imagine, he was extremely spoiled. I think he loved this season. But in 2015, when we moved back, uh, we had three kids. My brother had two kids, and then my first cousin, who we're extremely close to, uh, she had two kids as well. And uh, you can imagine, my mom and dad were so excited to have us back in town, uh, but really excited that Easter to be able to hide all the eggs for the kids. And, you know, for me, looking back to my childhood, that was always my favorite part. You know, my grandparents and my parents would hide the eggs in the backyard, and uh, it was just a blast. So we hit all the eggs, and uh, it was exciting to just set the kids loose. And it was like the floodgates opened. They ran into the backyard. They were so excited, all for about five minutes. And that's because that's the amount of time it took them to find the eggs. See, they came back, they had their baskets, and we looked in there, and we realized they only had about three or four eggs apiece. And we realized, I don't think my mom and dad were ready for seven kids. They didn't realize that hiding eggs for seven grandkids was going to be what it was. They were used to just having one grandkid. So there ended up only being about 30 eggs in total. And as you can imagine, this is a massive letdown for all of the kids. Now, for the adults, this was hilarious. I mean, we were laughing. And even to this day, we laugh about this story. It really is a great family memory that we have. So after the service today, I want to encourage you to do something. You know, Easter is a little bit different this year. I think we all understand that. But I want to encourage you to either gather around the lunch table, uh, gather in the living room with your family, and tell your favorite Easter story. And if you're by yourself this morning, I want to encourage you to use the live chat feature that we have uh, during the service today. Get on there and share your favorite Easter story with your OCC family. You know, we're still able to worship our risen Savior together today. And even though we're stuck indoors, we can still make some great family memories. Well, over the past few weeks, uh, really several weeks, we've been in a message series called Room for Doubt. And throughout this series, we've talked about how it's okay to ask the difficult questions that we have about Christianity. And it's even okay to express doubts that we have in our own faith. In fact, we've seen throughout this series how God can get a hold of those difficult questions, how he can get a hold of the doubt that we have in our lives And he can use those things to grow a greater faith in us. Now, the last few messages have been focused on really addressing the specific questions that people have about Christianity. Uh, Some of the big questions. Um, If you'll remember back, we looked at this question, is the Bible reliable? 
I think that's an important question that we need to address. We talked about um, why does God allow tragedy and suffering? And we said that there was a national survey that was taken. And with this survey, this is the number one question that people wanted an answer to. Why does God allow suffering in our own lives and in the world? And then last week, we started to look at this question. Is Jesus really the Son of God? So this morning, we're going to wrap up our series by looking at the evidence of the resurrection and why Jesus' claim to be the Son of God and the resurrection should matter in our lives today. You know, the resurrection of Jesus is the bedrock, the foundation of our faith. In fact, I would say that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity crumbles. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, the apostle Paul shares these words with the church in Corinth. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Friends, these are heavy words from the apostle Paul. And I believe what he's saying here is that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything that we affirm to be true about our faith is useless. He's saying our faith in Jesus, the mission of the local church, the importance of passing on faith to our children. I would say even your participation in worship this morning. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all of these things are useless. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the bedrock or the foundation of our faith. In fact, Jesus pointed to his coming resurrection as the ultimate piece of evidence for his claims about being the true son of God. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, we read these words. One day, some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. See, Jesus was saying that his resurrection would be the proof of all his other claims. The resurrection of Jesus is, as they say, the ballgame. So what evidence do we have that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Well, this morning, I want to look at what we call the three E's. These are three words that all start with the letter E that provide substantial support for the resurrection of Jesus. So if you're taking notes this morning, uh, the first E that you can write in is that Jesus' tomb was empty. Jesus' tomb was empty. You know, starting with the women who first visited the tomb and then the men who followed soon after. The disciples of Jesus unanimously across the board testified that the tomb was empty. That even though they were confused at first because they didn't fully understand what had happened, they recognized that the tomb was empty. But, but nobody during this time, not even the enemies of Jesus, disputed the fact that the tomb was empty. Instead, what the religious authorities, the religious leaders did is they made up a story. 
They actually bribed the guards who were put in charge of guarding the tomb, and then they coached them on what they should say if anyone questioned them about what happened. Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, this is what we read. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. Now, if the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so that you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. Now, if you think about this passage for a moment, if you go through verse by verse and see what's actually happening here, you're going to realize just how ridiculous this bribe was. All right, so on one hand, if the guards had really been asleep, which they would have been in trouble for falling asleep, but if they had really been asleep, they wouldn't have had any idea about what happened. On the other hand, if they had been awake and they'd actually seen the disciples coming to steal the body, they would have stopped and arrested them on the spot. That was their job. That's what they were supposed to do. See, this was clearly a cover story that was designed to mask what had really happened. Now, even though the story was being passed around, even though it was completely made up and false, there is one thing, one truth that I want you to acknowledge this morning. And that is that it acknowledges that the tomb of Jesus was indeed empty. And it reveals that the Jewish religious leaders had no idea how to explain it. Let me add this, that there's really no good reason for saying that anyone stole or moved Jesus' body. If you take it from the Romans' perspective, right, the Romans were the ones who crucified Jesus, and they certainly wouldn't want to make it look like he had risen from the dead because they neither expected nor believed that the resurrection was even possible. That's just not something they were raised to believe. And then if you look at it from the Jewish religious leaders' perspective, remember they wanted Jesus dead in the first place. They were the ones who came to the Roman officials and said they wanted Jesus crucified. So they wanted everyone to forget about Jesus and to believe that he stayed dead. And this really leaves us with one group, and that's the disciples, these early followers of Jesus. And the question has to be asked, did did they remove the body? And when you read the gospel accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you learn that the disciples were, were terrified after the crucifixion. They were actually in hiding in a room, trying to decide what their next move was going to be. But they were also in mourning. They were grieving. And Peter, in particular, was full of shame and regret after denying Jesus three times during his trial. I believe the disciples had neither the motivation, the will, nor the means to overcome the guards and steal Jesus' body. And if they did move the body, remember this, they, they would have had to lie about it. They would have been persecuted because of it and eventually die for it. And we know that the disciples were persecuted and many of them did die for their faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone, I don't know anyone who would be willing to die for something they knew wasn't true. This just doesn't make sense. 
We also see throughout the rest of the Old Testament that whatever experience the disciples had during this time led them to the conclusion that Jesus was resurrected, that Jesus was alive. In fact, it was something that radically changed their lives. You look at the Apostle Peter, a guy who went from being a coward, uh, denying Jesus three times, uh, to being a bold preacher in Acts chapter 2. He preached the very first sermon on uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then you have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who went from being a critic about Jesus' choices in John chapter 7 to being a key leader in the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 15. And then you have Thomas, the disciple who will forever be branded the doubting disciple. He went from being a skeptic, someone who wrestled with doubt, to being a true worshiper in John chapter 20, someone who was not afraid to tell other people about his belief in Jesus. And then you have the apostle Paul. He wasn't present during this time. Here's a guy who went from being the church's chief persecutor to being its most effective promoter. Something extraordinary happened to these early disciples that caused their lives to be radically transformed. See, friends, the first piece of evidence for the resurrection is that the tomb was empty. If you're taking notes, the second point this morning is that the risen Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. The risen Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. It's such an important truth that we recognize today. You know, the early disciples, they didn't believe in Jesus' resurrection merely because of the empty tomb. I mean, yes, that was a huge part of it, but that, that wasn't it. Another reason they believed is, is that because they saw the risen Lord. They saw the risen Jesus. They talked with him, and they actually eventually ate dinner with him. Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 35 through 43, we read these words. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were talking about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. The disciples stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. See, this was just one small group of many of the people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. In fact, summarizing the, the biblical narratives that we have, two leading authorities on the resurrection of Jesus today, a guy by the name of Gary Habermas and an, another by the name of Michael Lacona, they, they put it this way. These are their words. He say, friends as well as foes saw Jesus, not once, but many times over a period of 40 days. And we're told that these numbers include both men and women. 
hard-hearted Peter and soft-hearted Mary Magdalene, indoors and outdoors and so on. See, Jesus was seen on multiple occasions by large groups of people. And let's not forget the doubting disciple, Thomas. I want to come back to him for just a few moments. You know, maybe, maybe today you can relate to his story. Thomas wouldn't believe in the resurrection without solid evidence. But then he met the risen Lord and he saw the scars in his hands and side. It convinced that Jesus really had risen from the grave. Thomas humbly exclaimed these words in John chapter 20, verse 28. He said, my Lord and my God. I think this would have been the only appropriate response for Thomas in fact, when I think about uh, people coming to believe in Jesus for the first time today, whether it's students who've gone through my youth group, individuals that we've seen in the church who've made that decision to be baptized, to believe in Jesus, to commit their lives to him, this is really the only appropriate response in some form or fashion. This is the response that we have today when we realize that Jesus is who he says he is and we realize what he's done for us. See, when Thomas saw the risen Lord, Jesus didn't scold him for doubting. And that's so important to, to understand. Instead, he actually gave Thomas the evidence to overcome his doubt. But Jesus also says that everyone can be blessed by believing, even, even if they don't have the same direct evidence that Thomas had. See, the risen Jesus was seen by many eyewitnesses, and we can believe the testimonies of those who've gone before us, who've seen, who've seen the risen Lord and witnessed his resurrection. Well, the third point, if you're taking notes this morning, is that the accounts of Jesus' resurrection were early. The accounts of Jesus' resurrection were early. We've talked about this a little bit in a previous message, but I want to touch on this specifically focused on the resurrection this morning. You know, after these early followers of Jesus realized what had happened, that Jesus had truly conquered the grave, they immediately started telling others. In fact, the reports were verbal at first, but were soon written down as well. Now, in a past message, uh, Is the Bible Reliable?, we talked about the evidence that points out how some of the major books in the New Testament, specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, um, were written within 40 years of the resurrection. Now, I, I think today when we hear 40 years, that can sound like a long time, but historically speaking, that's just not a long time. But one of the earliest creeds of the church, and this is so interesting, one of the earliest creeds of the church, a text recorded by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically verses 3 through 8, is believed by most scholars uh, to date no more than five years after the resurrection. And actually, many scholars today contend that it goes back within months of Jesus' resurrection. And here's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, I pass on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. He says, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. 
He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Is British New Testament scholar, a guy by the name of James D.G. Dunn, who put it this way. He said, this tradition, what we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, we can be entirely confident was formulated as tradition within the first months of Jesus' resurrection. Church, imagine this. That the written account that affirms the resurrection likely goes back to within months of the resurrection itself. As one author put it, this is historical gold. Now, in addition to these early accounts in this early creed, the, public, uh, the first public preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, about the, the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, occurred in Jerusalem. This is the same city that Jesus was crucified, and it happened only 50 days after the resurrection. These written accounts, they they completely obliterate the notion that the resurrection of Jesus was, was a mere legend that developed over time. See, the resurrection of Jesus was the foundation of the Christian faith from the very beginning. And friends, it's the foundation of our faith today. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. So a big question as we get closer to the end of this message today, why should Jesus' claim to be the Son of God and the resurrection matter to us today? Why do these things matter? Well, friends, it matters, quite frankly, because it changes everything. It changes everything. If you remember, I started last week's message by reading a few paragraphs from the introduction of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. And in this introduction, Strobel recalled what he was thinking and feeling as he was wrestling with, with issues of the faith when he was a skeptic about the claims of Jesus. In fact, he said that in his book that Jesus never claimed to be God or that the idea of being God had never occurred to him. After Lee Strobel's spiritual journey of almost two years, during which he carefully studied the evidence for and against Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus, and the deity of Christ, we read that he finally reached a point where the avalanche of information was just too much. It made him realize, as he put it in his own words, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. The evidence was just too overwhelming. He describes it as an avalanche We know that Lee Strobel decided to to put his faith in Jesus, believing that Jesus is the true son of God who died for our sins and rose from the grave to give us new life in Jesus. Several years later, Lee Strobel wrote a book that has impacted millions called The Case for Christ. And how I want to end our sermon today is by giving you a list of truths that Lee came to believe and actually wrote down in his book. And as I give you this short list, I, my prayer is that you would really take these to heart today. That you would see if 
you don't believe maybe one or more of these or if you fully agree with everything that's here, but really allow these truths to affect your life today. Truth number one, if Jesus is the son of God, then his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. He says they are divine insights on which I can build my life. Truth number two, if Jesus sets the standard for morality, I can now have an unwavering foundation for my choices and decisions rather than basing them on the ever-shifting sands of the world and self-centeredness. How true is that? Truth number three, if Jesus did rise from the dead, that means he's still alive today and available for me to encounter on a personal basis. Truth four, if Jesus conquered death, he can open the door of eternal life for anyone who believes. Truth number five, if Jesus has divine power, he has the supernatural ability to guide me, to help me, and to transform my life as I follow him. Truth number six, if Jesus personally knows the pain of loss and suffering, he can comfort and encourage me in the midst of my storm, in my world that is completely corrupted by sin. Truth number seven, if Jesus loves me as he says, that means he has my best interest at heart. That means I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by committing myself to him and his purposes for my life. And finally, truth number eight that he wrote down in his book, he says, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then as my creator, he rightfully deserves my allegiance, my obedience, and my worship. In the book of Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples the most important question that any of us will ever hear in this life, the most important question that any of us could, could ever answer. And that question is, who do you say that I am? And friends, that's my question for you this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? Was he just another good person, someone who was really kind and compassionate? Or do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God? Before raising his friend Lazarus from the, from the dead in John chapter 11, Jesus said these words to Lazarus' sister, Martha. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Church, Jesus has the power over life and death, as well as the power to forgive sins. And this is because he is the creator of life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He can take what is broken and make it new. Broken families, broken relationships, a faith that is overcome and overtaken by doubt, uncertainty about the future, Whatever it is that's going on in your, in your world today, Jesus can take what's broken and make it new. See, when we place our faith in Jesus and then we follow his instruction, his command to be baptized into Christ, the Bible tells us that we are adopted into the family of God and we are given new life in Jesus. The Bible says that the old has gone and the new has come. 
My question today is, have you placed your faith in Jesus? The Bible tells us that God's free gift of grace and forgiveness is available to anyone. It's just that. It's free. It's a gift. And we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, you can do so today. And I hope that you would at this time.